Welcome to Virginia Outdoor Adventures podcast. We bring outdoor adventure stories and recommendations from athletes, conservationists, authors, park guides, community leaders, and local business owners from across the Commonwealth. I'm your host, Jessica Bowser. This isn't your grandfather's pastime. Today's guest is using a hobby to unite outdoor enthusiasts, protect natural spaces, and build community. Ethan Martin is the owner of Tail Teller's Fly Shop in downtown Lynchburg. Ethan explains why the intricacies of fly fishing, which is both an art and a science, is causing the hobby to explode in popularity. Fly fishing requires an understanding of ecosystems, and when an ecosystem changes, anglers are among the first to notice and act to protect it. Tail Teller's Fly Shop has become a community hub for education and fellowship that is getting more people into the outdoors and connected with nature. Let's go. Ethan, welcome to Virginia Outdoor Adventures. Thanks for having me today. What do you love about Virginia's outdoors? So coming from the the perspective of a person who likes to fish, uh, I do like the variety um, that we have in Virginia. So uh, I was kind of talking to you a little bit about that when you came in the shop. It's cool because where we're located, you can, within an hour drive, be in the mountains and fishing for small uh, brook trout or just smaller species of just wild fish. And then, you know, you can go 40 minutes south and you can fish on Smith Mountain Lake and uh, catch striped bass, or you can go to the James River, which is just right in our backyard, fish for smallmouth. So as a person who, who enjoys fly fishing, and that's what I, uh, I tend to do with most of my free time, just the variety and the fact that here in Virginia, you know, we can, we can fish year round. Um, it's a little different than than other places you know that are up north or maybe out west where they have to deal with uh super super cold water or you know it actually completely freezes over Um, and so as a person who is not interested in uh ice fishing or or freezing myself i do i really love the the variety that virginia has of all the things you know we have a we, we have an excellent fishery um and we might not have like the best of everything but we we have everything. <laughs> so that, that's probably what I would say is my, uh, my favorite thing about Virginia. Oh, the variety. That's right. And you had mentioned that I was in your shop not too long ago. So just a little bit of background for the listeners. I did come into your shop in downtown Lynchburg, which is adorable, by the way. And you've got a really, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the shop is adorable. Lynchburg's adorable. Everything about it is great. I haven't been to Lynchburg in about five years. And so that was the first time I had been there in a while. And I was surprised to see how much the place has really built up and, and changed and how much fun it is in that area. So that was really cool. And I'm very excited to get back there sometime soon. But before I came into your shop, I honestly didn't know that much about fly fishing. And being introduced to you was sort of my um, introduction into fly fishing. And I'm really excited about this episode because I learned so much from you. And I, I found out how intricate like fly fishing really is and um, all that's involved in the hobby of fly fishing. And so I'm really excited to have a conversation about it to introduce folks to fly fishing, but then to also talk about the outdoor community as a whole and what role fly fishing can play in conservation and in building community. And so I think this is going to be a really great episode. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. Could you start off by telling us how you got started in fly fishing? Yeah, absolutely. You have different types of fishing. So like, like, you know, the classic one that people think of is you put worm on a hook with a little bobber, you cast it out and you sit down and and you wait, uh, essentially. So I started doing that when I was just a little kid, you know, with my grandpa, I was probably like two or three when I started. Um, And so when I got into to fly fishing, I was actually I just turned 10. I used to spend a couple of days or maybe a week or two with my grandparents. I I think as a 10 year old, I had just gotten on my grandfather's last nerve and uh, he was trying to find, you know, an activity for me to do that would give him a couple of minutes of alone time. (laughs) And so he, he got out a fly rod, um, which is they're a little different than normal uh, fishing poles. So a fly rod is typically going to be longer and it also is a little more, wobbly i guess in layman's terms or it's uh, more wiggly <laughs> and so basically the flex that's in the rod is is designed to cast little tiny things that weigh basically nothing with very little to to no effort 
So the idea of fly fishing is just basically that of how can you cast something that weighs nothing and get it to go 40, 50, 60 feet. So uh, a lot of things when, when you're a kid, you know, is all revolves around practice and, um, and finding a repetitive task like my grandfather, what he did, which was he grabbed a hula hoop, grabbed his fly rod, he threw the, the hula hoop out into the yard, and then he said, okay, take this little fly and get it into the hula hoop standing from here. And so that was my first introduction um, to what fly fishing was. It wasn't even catching a fish on it. It was just casting the rod and then finding out that it was kind of fun because it was it was active. When I started actually being able to get it in the into the hula hoop, uh, I think my grandpa realized that maybe uh, it, I would enjoy actually catching fish with that. Uh, the next day we went to like a little farm pond that he had permission to fish. So we took the same rod. Um, it was this old bamboo rod, probably from the fifties, uh, and caught all sorts of these little bluegill. So what, what people would normally catch on, you know, your worm and the bobber really basic. Um, we started catching them on a fly and, and what's cool about a fly rod and what really captivated me, um, was two things. One is just how much, you know, the fish, the fish felt massive because the rod has so much flex to it. So you feel like you're just reeling in a whale, uh, even though it's a tiny little fish. Um, but the, the thing that really got me hooked into it was the fact that you didn't have to have uh, a bait. So I, you could have these pre-tied things um, that you're going out and fishing with. I, I thought that was awesome because as a kid, we had a couple of lakes that were near us uh, and I didn't want to go and dig up worms. I basically took some some pliers and, and tried to figure out how I could make these things myself so that I didn't have to go out and uh, and buy baits or, or anything i just took like my mom's sewing thread and um i had a couple of materials on hand um like feathers and that sort of stuff um and so i started making these old you know beat up nothing pretty flies and uh, would take them to the little ponds around where we lived and started catching fish on these things so when when that happened then i turned 11 and uh, a, a friend of my dad he found out that i was catching fish on this old fly rod. So what he did is he bought me a, a fly tying kit. So basically it was like all of the proper tools and the proper materials to make all of these little flies. And uh, as an 11 year old, I want to do something constructive. I want to make these things, but I want to do something with it. And so it just, it tapped into this vein that I, that I had, which was like, I love the creative uh, ideas that you can do. And I love the fact that I can then take that thing and, and use it for something else that I enjoy doing. At, at an early age, I kind of found a passion for one, catching fish and, and two, doing that with um, smaller or big uh, flies that I had made myself. And that just kind of, you know, it stuck with me and here I am today. <laughs> it was really interesting for me to watch you tie these flies. And when you had first described tie flying to me, I guess I sort of understood the concept, but I didn't necessarily understand the purpose behind it. And when I came into the yep. shop and I saw all the different types of flies there were, and then of course, all of the different materials that you can purchase to make your own flies. And you started explaining to me why you would want to use this type of fabric or this type of material and what the whole purpose behind it was. Then it was like the light bulb went off. And that's when I realized this is a really intricate hobby. And the more you understand it, the more it can actually pull you in because you you want to learn more to get better at it. Um, so can you describe what the purpose of the ties are and why you would want to make uh, ties that have different features on them and, and why that would help you be better at fishing? Throughout the year, you have different bugs that hatch. Um, so like you know, for instance, if somebody was going out this day, there's a small, it's everything through the winter is very small, um, but it's like a black caddis fly. If you were to go to one of these small streams where the fish are keying in or they're being very selective on eating that bug, um, it, it would be like uh, if you or I, you know, if you go to a, a five-star meal and you're expecting something super fancy and then they bring you a McDonald's bag and set it on your plate, you, you might be a little confused and you, you might, you know, say, I'm not paying 
full price to eat that McDonald's meal. And, and essentially that's what's happening to the fish. You know, they are expecting a certain food source to go over the top of them. And when it's not that particular food source or, or uh, something that's acting like the natural, then they're not interested in, in eating it. We've figured out a way to imitate those insects using um, nowadays, you know, pretty much anything can be used. Um, it, w whether that be natural materials or uh, synthetic material. So, for example, when the insects are hatching off of the off the water, um, they're typically a lighter color. And so when they're hatching, they'll come up to the surface off of the bottom of the ground and then they'll sit on the surface for just a couple of seconds as their wings dry. Uh, as they, It's kind of like a caterpillar, you know, they've molted out of this uh, shuck or this shell they're on the top of the water and then they are getting off of the water. You would have people that figured out, okay, we want the fly to uh, have the body of it just sitting underneath the water and the wings above it, just like a natural. Um, so they would tie a, a fly, you know, including or excluding whatever materials or whatever colors, um, basically to perfectly uh, emulate that, emulate that, um, that pattern. And so, that's where it all started. And then from there, it's just evolved and progressed and progressed. And uh, here we are today where you have a shop filled with all sorts of crazy uh, colored and dyed feathers and, uh, and furs and, you know, synthetic plastic materials that don't sink and foam. You know, you, you fill in the blank and there's probably somebody making a fly out of it. Because um, like you said, it is pretty intricate. And, uh, and every little change that you do, you know, it might not make a fish eat it any more than you know one of the older patterns um but it's just the idea of you've you've come up with something uh, or you've created something that has has tricked a fish and that there's just something innately rewarding uh within that you know it's to me it's just it's more rewarding than uh going to your your local walmart or wherever buying a, a bait off the shelf and then going out and catching a fish on it it's just a lot more rewarding when you have, have handcrafted this little bug or you know the guy who did make it and then you go out and then and then fish eat it. Um, so that's kind of the process of uh, why it all exists, essentially. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people think about fishing as standing on a bank and casting a, a rod into the water and then just waiting. And fly fishing is really different because it starts long before you even arrive on the place that you're going to be fishing. You have to really understand uh, the environment and that area is what it what it seems like to me. And so it was really neat coming into the shop and seeing all those different materials that you just described. But also I got to watch you actually tie a fly and just the process of watching you do it was also meditative. <laughs> it yeah. Was, it, it was a lot of fun. fun. It's uh -huh. very fun. <laughs> uh, and relaxing. Really, yeah. I think that's, that's one of the cool things is, you know, it, it takes a hobby and uh, something that you enjoy that is usually done when it's nice outside. So it, it takes that uh, desire to go and fish. And even on the rainy, gloomy, nasty days or nights, uh, you can you can still kind of work towards that goal of, of fishing. Um, you can go into a room or sit down at the kitchen table and tie up a couple of your own little special things. It, and the two things I'd say, it's really not as hard as what people think when you when you have a basic knowledge of it. And, and two, you know, if it's something that, I tell pe most people, if you can take a, a string and wrap it around your finger, then I can get you tying. Because <laughs> really, that's what uh, a lot of this stuff is. It's just you take a take a hook and you take thread, which is tying thread. So it's a, it is a little different than just the normal thread um, that you get at you know Michaels or whatever hobby store. And you basically wrap the thread around the hook and you incorporate different uh, materials or elements um, and you know finish off the fly and go and catch a fish. <laughs> Yeah, so I can understand why it would be really rewarding if after studying a certain type of fish and what it likes to eat in, in its environment at a certain time of year, and then you attempt to imitate or mimic that, and you're successful in doing that, that's quite a, a rewarding experience. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think that's where fly fishing, you know, for a long time had this idea or like prestige about it is because it just takes a little bit more uh, knowledge essentially, um, to get into it because it, it is a difference of, uh, like when, when I started fishing, like I said, when I was a kid, 
you know, I, I didn't really particularly like just casting out a chunk of bait and then sitting on the bank. Some people, they, they, you know, they enjoy that. That is relaxing to them. For myself, it, I always wanted to be like doing something, you know, like constantly. So, so fishing to me, I like catching fish, but when you weren't catching fish, I was like, well, so what do we do now? You know, <laughs> and fly fishing, uh, it hit a different chord with me because, uh, you are pretty much always actively doing something, um, you know, whether it being casting or a lot of the environments that we, uh, fly fish in are more, um, they're easier to be active because you're hiking, you know, up a stream or in a stream or beside a stream. Um, and you're not focusing on just one area and just smacking that one area for a full day. Um, you're actually like actively moving. So it becomes like this idea of, of kind of like hiking and while you're hiking, catching fish, um, or, you know, you're out on a boat and it's not just like sit in one spot and wait, uh, you're like actively searching for fish. Um, and I, I like that just a lot more. It's just who I am, how I'm wired. I know there's a lot of people that I think if they actually understood, they understood what fly fishing was that they may hate fishing, <laughs> but then when they realize, Oh wait, fly fishing, you're like actively doing something. They would probably be really interested in, in trying it because it isn't just, you know, sitting on a bank, staring at the sky, you know, falling asleep. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I would wholeheartedly agree because I am one of those people. I, I have fished before oh, yeah. and yep. I enjoy it once in a while. Um, I have family that fish out on the Great Lakes and in other places and I don't mind it, but I'm, I'm a really active person. And so when I go outdoors, I don't want to sit in one spot. And so, you know, yep. the idea of fishing is okay once in a while, but I would much rather be doing something active and fly fishing is a very actively uh, engaged activity. And, you know, I understand from what you told me and from what I've read online that fly fishing is growing in popularity. What is it that you think is attracting people to the hobby? One, I, I see it growing just because I, I own a shop. Like I see how many people are coming in and saying, I want to get into this and they get the stuff to go out. Um, but two, you know, even just watching TV, I mean, I don't watch a ton of TV to be honest, but when I do, I, I always notice like, you know, when people are fishing on commercials, they pretty much always have a fly rod. So it's interesting seeing how it's, it's hitting mainstream media. And I think people are understanding one, it's cheaper than what it used to be. Um, and there's, you know, a couple of different reasons for that, but two, uh, for a long time, fly fishing had this stigma that it was a elitist sport. Um, or that it was just for old men, you know, with their tweed hats and pipes out on a stream, not catching fish. <laughs> so like, I think that that mentality has shifted or maybe faded some. Um, I think a big part of this is also social media. Um, if I'm, if I'm honest, because, you know, when people can, can see on our Instagram page or they watch it like a YouTube video of somebody fly fishing, it kind of loses that uh, barrier of, of what it is. And I think that it also adds to that, whoever it is that's watching it realize like, I, I want to try that. I think I can actually do that. It actually looks fun, you know? And so I think that as people get educated into what fly fishing actually is, I think that, um, you know, more people are attracted to that. Uh, one of the other benefits as well, that it's the little thing, but I've, I've heard countless people, um, talk about that is that they appreciate the fact that they don't have to get bait <laughs> as, as silly as that is. But I, I mean, I felt that myself, um, you know, like taking my daughters out and we'll go and fish and my daughters are, are young. Um, you know, the fact that I can just open up a little box of flies and say, you know, which one looks, you know, cute to you, little Evie. You know? <laughs> and, you know, she could say, I want the purple one. And, uh, and we can just fish with that without having to like get worms or anything like that. I honestly do think that that adds uh, a little bit, maybe not a ton, but it's a, it's a little step or a little, um, progress into when people realize like, you don't have to touch, you know, worms, you don't have to touch bait, that sort of thing. Um, it just removes one more barrier for, for people to get into it. So, uh, really in a nutshell, I think though, social media is probably one of the biggest factors as to why people have been getting into it because, you know, it, it looks cool. It's fun. It, it's enticing. You know, people can tell it's an active thing. It's not just, you know, a guy posting a picture of him sitting on the bank, like we mentioned. 
um it's you know you see the fly line in the air and you see like a really pretty scenery uh around i've started paying attention to when i see people fishing now because now i'm interested in you know what they're fishing for and what they're using to fish uh but what i have noticed when i've started paying attention is i see a lot of families out there fishing together i see yep. a lot of couples out there fishing um that day that you and i met in your shop you recommended a location to me in waynesboro is was it Constitution yeah. Park. Yep. Constitution where there, Park. Yeah, that seems to be a really popular spot. And that was the first time that I had ever been there. But I pulled into the parking lot of the park. And the first thing I noticed were families and couples that were coming back from fishing, like in their wading boots and their yep. overalls and carrying poles. And it, it seems to be evolving. It's becoming a family activity, a group activity, something you can do with your friends. But also, I just think in this time of COVID, when everybody is looking for something to do outside to find an outdoor hobby like this is really fantastic because you have the time now to dedicate to learning how to do this. Absolutely. Yeah. COVID for us, maybe probably many people in the outdoor industry would say that as well, but a lot of people got into, into fly fishing because of COVID. Like you said, they've had more time, the family's all together. And so it's something cool to, to do together. Um, I think one of the other things that's changed uh, if I'm, if I'm being objective is like for a long time, fly fishing was just seen as a old guy's sport. And I've seen more, you know, young men, young women getting into the sport, you know, just period. So it's cool to see how many like female anglers come in. They're like, you know, I've been interested in fly fishing for a long time and I'm just going to, I'm going to go out and do it. Um, and so it's, it's a, it's a cool thing. And even like yesterday, you know, there was a, a woman who was in her sixties and she was like, I've always wanted to do this. So you know, what's stopping me essentially. So I think that that mentality has just, it's, it's been shifting. Um, and because of that, things like, you know, fly fishing that once seemed like, you know, I'm not going to go and, and fly fish, you know, it's just, it's more approachable and it's, it is fun. <laughs> That's the bottom line. It's just a, it's a fun activity. <laughs> I enjoyed watching you demonstrate how to cast. And I remember saying, this looks like my cat's toy. Like you were just yep. casting yep. and it was landing <laughs> on the floor and you're pulling it back and you would cast it again and it would land and pull back. It was just, it was very relaxing and meditative just yep. to watch you do it. And yep. so I could envision myself in that moment, standing out on the water in a boat or on the bank or whatever it might happen to be. And just doing that over and over again, sort of mindlessly, but at the same time, enjoying all of the wildlife and the nature around you. Yeah. I, and they've done studies on it. Honestly, I need to look into those studies more because I've, I've heard several people in the shop mention them, but just on the, on the qualities of, you know, fly fishing and how it is, uh, basically a, a relaxant or it's something that gets your mind out of, you know, whatever it is that you've been thinking on for forever and just kind of gets you into a different zone. Um, and I, I think that that to me has been helpful. I, like I said, I've been fly fishing for, pretty much, I guess my whole life, <laughs> my cognitive life, but it's been cool, you know, taking out CEOs of, of companies and big corporations, and they've got all sorts of stuff on their minds and you can get them out on a stream and it just kind of all melts away because all you're really thinking about is, is looking for that next little fish or, or big fish or whatever. And so to me, that's been a, uh, it's been fascinating, honestly, just to see it, it just relaxes you. <laughs> like you said, it's a meditative quality. And when you think about it, you know, like there's dumb things that we do all the time, um, like playing with a cat's toy. I think it's halfway for the cat, halfway for us, you know, <laughs> watching yep. like watching the cat respond to the different ways that you might like wiggle the little feathers or whatever. Uh, and so there is an there's an aspect to that, um, that it's just we and we enjoy it. I feel like every time I look at the news, there is another article about how people are connecting with nature in that exact way. And I had mentioned to you that I started to compare fly fishing to birding because I'm a birder. And we just did an episode on, on birding a couple of weeks ago and how that um, hobby is exploding. And I think it's for the exact same reason. If you read all of these articles, it's not just that people are looking for a, a way to get outside and to reduce stress and, and get away from all of the crazy things that are happening in our world right now. Uh, but it's also like active meditation and your mind is taken away from all of those other things, but you're learning to do something else and to focus on something else that is restorative for your spirit yep. and for your mind and emotionally and, and all of those things and birding and fly fishing and hiking and all of those things are, are growing in popularity as a result. 
Yeah, I think it's cool too how you can almost blend a lot of these things together. Um, like it's it is really cool when you're out on a stream uh, or a river and you see like a bald eagle or you see like a different type of woodpecker because I, I like to pay attention to that sort of stuff. And so it, it's really it's cool how everything can blend together. Like when you pay attention to uh, what trees are around a stream, which birds go to those trees, um, and then how that plays into even how the how the fish feed because um, certain fish like you know for instance a carp uh there are there are fruit bearing trees that they will grow over a lake or over a river and they will drop those uh the fruit into the stream and you know the fish will come and eat those things the birds will come and eat those things so it's cool how a lot of this stuff it all blends together Um, and when you increase your understanding basically of the of the natural world around you you become you become better at, at whatever it is that you're trying to do if that is birding or if that is fly fishing um, so I think there's aspects of that that like people like to learn. They want to become better at at fly fishing or at whatever. Uh, they want to get more out of the the hobby or the sport. Um, and so a lot of that comes around just education, you know, and and learning these little tips and tricks because a lot of it honestly is is uh, it's common sense. You know, when you sit back and think about it, you just need somebody to to tell you. Um, so like it, it, you know, let me give one example through the winter time. Uh, the streams that I often tell people to focus on more are the streams that receive more direct sunlight. Um, and, you know, reason why is those streams are typically going to be warmer uh, and the fish are a cold blooded animal, right? So uh, when that water temperature goes to like 38 degrees, I mean, that little fish or big fish is you know, six degrees away from freezing. So it's going to be incredibly lethargic. So when you find a stream that has more, direct sunlight throughout the winter time. Uh, that means that the sun is going to hit the rocks that are in the stream. And then that therefore heats the stream up, which makes the fish more active. Now the opposite is true throughout the summertime. So you want a stream that has as much indirect sunlight as possible because you want to find a very cool stream because uh, if the air temperature exceeds typically uh, or the, if the river temperature exceeds, you know, 80 degrees, it's very hard for a trout to habitate or to survive year round in that stream. Um, so it's little things, little tidbits like that, that then spark this idea in somebody of like, okay, well, what streams can I think of that get more direct sunlight? And then it becomes like this, this exploration game of, you know, you're looking at mountain peaks on a map and like, okay, well, this one faces the sun more. So then you go to that stream and then it's like, oh, dang it. You know, it just somehow the sun doesn't hit it just enough. So it's, it's cool um, just to see how all these little things, they, they fit together. Um, it just requires, you know, a little bit of thought, a little bit of research, maybe asking some questions um, and then exploring it yourself. And I think that that to me is, is one of the reasons why I really enjoy uh, this sport is I, I thrive in that sort of thing, you know, like always trying to refine uh, myself or always trying to like find this, this idea of like exploration and finding new streams and going new places um, and, and experiencing new things. Uh, and I think there's a lot of people that are like that. It seems to me that somebody who is really good at fly fishing and has learned the ecosystems and the environment and the species and what they eat and, and all of those things would have a really solid foundation of uh, knowledge um, of the natural world. So would somebody like that then notice if there are changes in the environment as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, there's two things that I often tell people. One is that like, you know, you can show up to any stream and use just a fly that looks like a worm and you'll catch fish. But the idea is how do you, how do you maximize, you know, how many fish you're catching? Um, and so within that, you, you do notice changes. Um, you know, some of the ones that, that we see, uh, I think more prevalently is talking with some of the, the older people in the sport. So there are some rivers that they just don't have, the the insect hatches like they used to um and there are different you know varying a plethora of reasons as to why everybody has an idea of why there might be less um it could be you know acid rains it could be you know this or that changes um but there are definitely things that you see that can cause just a direct result or a direct change on the fishing conditions on that stream and some of that is for the good some of that is is for the better or for the worse i guess 
Um, so like some things that you can just quickly see is one is, you know, if there's deforestation or, and there are some protections over this, but, um, if they just chop down every single tree that is beside a stream, one is you'll have insane amounts of erosion that get into the stream, which cause any amount of rainfall, that stream will now become super cloudy because all of the habitat that was holding that bank together, um, has been removed. And then the second thing that happens is uh, you get a massive temperature increase in that stream. So yeah, maybe that's nice in the in the wintertime, but through the summertime when everything gets super hot, it can completely obliterate uh, fish that aren't able to survive that heat. And it's, it's crazy, you know, that it's just a tree, you know, <laughs> that <laughs> if the trees are there, you know, then the habitat can, can remain. Um, the, I think though, for me, it's, it's easy because I see it more. It's, it's easy to focus on some of the, the negatives within that. Um, so there's a lot of fisheries that people would say aren't fishing as good as they used to, um, which is true. The interesting thing within that is there are quite a few fisheries as well that are doing better now than uh, in terms of the, the overall health of the river. So like that's where it gets weird. Um, and I, I kind of brushed on this a little bit in, uh, when you were in the shop, cause I don't, I don't know the answers, so I'm not going to say that I know the answers, but it, it's interesting, like talking to my, my grandfather, or some of the older men, uh, around Lynchburg about like the James river and just the overall health of the, the James river, because most of them remember, you know, when the river ran black, <laughs> that's what they always talk about, like massive chunks of, of, uh, foam that are all dyed and, and colored different colors floating down the river because of the factories that were up river. Mm. So it's interesting now because we don't have that. I mean, the stream is, is managed uh, or the river is, is managed pretty well um, in terms of the health of the water itself. Um, you know, it's, it's clean. I, I actually had a customer come in the other day who told me he took a, a sample from the James and sent it to a friend of his who was a microbiologist uh, and that, that guy ran the James river compared to uh, the water coming out of our faucets in Lynchburg and found that there was very little difference in the, the quality of them, which I mean, wow. I'm, I'm not sure what that means entirely, but maybe our tap water is terrible or maybe the river is really clean. Um, but I thought that was crazy, but that where it gets interesting then is because the uh, there are some, some populations. So like the smallmouth bass, for instance, the population we've seen a, uh, a decrease as an angler um i've seen a decrease in in the fish that are that are here so you know you have this question then of like what what's going on <laughs> basically like why why are we experiencing uh less fish catches you know the size goes up but that makes sense because the size of the fish is going to only get better the less competition there is for food so it makes sense that the overall size of the fish is larger um but you know, where are those, those smaller fish, um, that, that show that the stream is healthy. Uh, and there I've heard a million different answers. I've heard, you know, answers from biologists. I've heard, um, stuff as, you know, simple as, you know, maybe it's the flathead catfish, or maybe it's the muskie that are eating all of the bass. Uh, then there's more complex answers like, uh, pretty much every June, uh, we've been getting massive rainfall, which is a little bit, um, uh, maybe not new, but, um, it's just, it's a seasonal thing. And that always typically seems to be happening right around the time that the smallmouth bass, uh, are spawning. Um, and so it could be that the massive flooding that we have in early June, Mayish time range, uh, is basically wiping out the majority of the smallmouth bass that are, that are spawning, um, or the fry or the eggs. So, you know, it, it, there's a lot of these interesting questions that, I don't have the answers for them. I, I haven't talked it. I've talked to a lot of people about this because it, it's something that I, I'd love to know the answer to. And I've heard a lot of answers, but none of them seem to, to fit, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so it's probably a mixture of a bunch of different things, but uh, I would just love to see, you know, the stream or the James B as healthy as what, you know, we can get it and still have the fish population. So it's like, you know, how do we figure out how to, how to get the best of both worlds? Um, I don't have the answer to that, but, uh, I'm always searching and maybe one day I'll, I'll find it with the help of, uh, with the help of friends and actual biologists. Cause at, at the end of the day, you know, I'm just a guy who owns a fishing shop. <laughs>
Just this past week in the Washington Post, I don't know if you saw the article or not, but the article is about the increase of people who are taking up hunting as a hobby and how conservationists and or conservation groups are very excited about this. And on the surface, you might be thinking, now, why would a conservation group be interested or happy that people are hunting? But the reality is that um, the people who are getting involved in hunting are connecting to the land in ways that they hadn't before and that hunters often are conservationists because without the environment that is needed to support what they're hunting, they can't hunt. Absolutely. I think that's one of the biggest, maybe misunderstandings, but like when you look at, you know, how is, how is conservation funded? The vast, vast, vast majority of that is coming from hunters and anglers uh, that are, you know, all of the licensed sales that the state takes from us. Um, so like when I pay, it's about $50 that I as an angler pay every single year. All of that money is going to fund essentially conservation. So when you take a, you know, just your average Joe who doesn't hunt, doesn't fish, well, he's not really paying. If he goes to a national forest or, or uh, you know, he maybe Shenandoah National Park, you know, he's paying to get in there when that stuff needs money. I mean, you have to have money to manage. So um, I think that's one of the the misunderstandings. Every angler that I know and, and the vast majority of hunters that I know are at their heart conservationists because when you're living in a concrete jungle uh, you, and you can't hunt and fish, then you're not doing what you enjoy. <laughs> um, and so, like you said, there's, there's always ways, I think, especially as a conservationist, I would consider myself in that vein, um, a conservationist because I do thoroughly enjoy the the national forest. Honestly, I, I haven't kept one of the fish that I've caught in, in years. Um, and it's, it doesn't have really any, so it's kind of dumb, right? Cause like I go out and I catch fish all the time and I don't keep them to eat them. I just keep them and, you know, take a picture for a second and put them back in the water and come back later to catch them. Um, so, you know, it, it's kind of this weird, uh, mindset as an angler. Um, but, you know, it all just boils down to how are we treating, how are we managing um, the places that we like to fish. There was a river um, where a individual decided that he wanted to camp somewhat permanently um, with his RV. And so, you know, he needed a place to put his sewage. So he decided to uh, take a pipe and just put it into a local fishery, (laughs) Uh, Mm. which is definitely frowned upon. The people that found it were anglers who were just walking up this stream um, and saw a pipe leading into a fishery. And they were, you know, curious, why is there a pipe here? Because this is in a national forest. So they followed up the pipe, uh, found the RV, found the individual that was neither a hunter nor an angler. He just was trying to live off the grid, I guess. Um, and they reported it. And so <laughs> the people came and got a big fine he's you know not not there anymore obviously um but you know it's little things like that that's just like if there weren't anglers that would have been going on forever and i think what people um forget about is the fact that all of the small streams you know that's where we get all of our water you know for for dc charlottesville uh lynchburg roanoke all stuff like the the reservoirs that we have are all filled up with water from our small streams so it's kind of one of those things it's like when you don't care for the small streams or where you don't care for um, those, I would say fisheries, but just water ecosystems um, as a whole, then as a whole, you're going to see your water degrade. You're going to see all sorts of uh, nasty, you know, be it a chemical or uh, a disease, you know, something like that, that enters into the system. I think in, in all reality, in a you know, we can keep it as clean as we can, you know, like there's some things that just happen, you know, for example, like a bear can walk over a stream and die and, and, and die in the stream and and decay in that stream. And that's going to release all sorts of weird things in it. But, you know, there are other things like when you have a a whole cow field that is the, the cows are just, they can walk into the stream and do their business and all of that stuff, you know, the, from a, thousand cows um when they're all trying to cool off in the summertime all just using the restroom uh in the stream i think that like there are some little things like that that do add up um especially because like you know the farmer might say 
well, this is just one small little stream. But then when you have maybe two farmers that say, this is just one small little stream, and that's all draining into the same watershed, uh, you can start to develop uh, a serious problem with, with the watershed just because of the amount of um, waste that or excess waste that's in the system. So yeah, that naturally happens, you know, deer walk through a stream, um, and, and go to the bathroom, but, you know, having a cattle field with a hundred or 200 or a thousand, um, cows doing it. So there's all sorts of little things like that, that if, if it's just properly managed, um, then we get healthier water, we get better systems for, uh, for food, all that stuff. And it all revolves around basically conservation. So it sounds to me like anglers and people in the hobby and even you as a small local business owner have a role to play in conservation and in educating the public about these issues. Yeah, for sure. I, I would say where I find the shop fitting in and, and it's is basically the education slash um, aspects of conservation. Um, so like you know, being able to do stream uh, plantings, that sort of thing to create shade and structure and bank stabilization. Like there are things like that that we can do, you know, trash pickups, that sort of stuff is a good temporary solution. But obviously, you know, doing one trash pickup a, a year, it's a great thing to do, but it's not enough for the overall longevity of a stream because uh, there's a lot more to it just than just than picking up trash. So that's where I find myself fitting a lot into the education uh, vein and, and then trying to learn as much of that as I can, because I mean, I don't want to be like the many, many, many people on Facebook or wherever else that are self-proclaimed experts. Um, I actually want to know what I'm, what I'm talking about. And I want to know, you know, if this idea is, is valid. Um, and so, and then educate other people, which is where that boils down to. We, we, um, it's a little harder during 2020, obviously with COVID, but, uh, we do like free classes just for the community as a way to to give back, to get people into fly fishing, um, to learn a lot of these different um, aspects, you know, within within the fly fishing world. So like, you know, what bugs are what bugs and what stream should you be looking into? Um, but then we also talk about, you know, things like fish handling or how do you because uh, the majority of guys who fly fish, there, there's it's a very small majority that actually do keep the fish. Most of us are just catch and release only um, anglers. Uh, and so like, you know, teaching people how to handle fish correctly. So that way the, the fish, you know, survive that experience um, as well as things like, you know, teaching people, this is proper stream etiquette. Or if you see a pipe going into a stream, you know, <laughs> go and see what the pipe is. So there's all sorts of little things like that, that, um, you know, people, I think innately they, they want to, they know, I think very few people wake up and say, how can I screw over the world <laughs> today? <laughs> Most people want to, want to leave it better than they found it. And, uh, and so it's just all about equipping people to be able to do that. Uh, and so that's where, you know, I think that as a shop, we're kind of like a gatekeeper. We trying to get as many people in as we can with the best knowledge that they can. Um, and in a way that is helpful, um, not hurtful because there, there are things that anglers can do that might be hurtful, um, to the overall, you know, health of a stream, you know, little, little things like when they catch a fish and throw it up on the bank and, and take photos because that, um, you know, that could kill a fish. So there's things like that, that we can have a, a very, um, helpful, uh, impart into the, the wildlife around us. Cause you know, maybe that fish also feeds the Eagle or maybe that fish goes and survives and, uh, spawns successfully. And there's a thousand more fish next year. Um, so there, there's all sorts of little things that, you know, when we do them right, um, it, it leads to conservation and it's just kind of a part of, part of who we are. So, um, it is interesting how it, you know, it doesn't feel like much, but in all, in all reality, you know, those little things do add up. What I have seen, your shop is providing quite a service to the community because not only are you educating people on these issues, but you're providing opportunities for people to get together either with casting workshops or fly tying um, workshops, trash cleanups. And there's just so many things that are bringing people together at the same time that they are learning something new and participating in the outdoors and becoming conservationists on their own. It's just, um, it's a wonderful thing to see from the outside and makes me even more excited to try this out on my own. Yeah, I think that's, that's been a part of our DNA um, from, from the onset is teaching people. Um, I, I've told 
many a persons, I think like my, one of my life goals is just like making people better. And so, you know, I get asked a lot of times, you know, like, why don't you charge for these classes and stuff like that? And I, I always just laugh. Cause I'm like, cause I'm not going to <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not going to charge for, you know, a fly fishing one on that sort of stuff. Um, I just, I, I just believe in giving back to the community and, uh, and not withholding that information. Um, I think one of the other things too, that, that I just kind of realized on my own is with the things like social media, like YouTube, you can find information about pretty much anything that you want. Um, the problem is, is that a lot of times that information is maybe not inaccurate, um, but it's uh, unhelpful for where it is that you live. So, you know, there are certain flies that, uh, or certain insects or certain, you know, rod reel, all, all that stuff that is helpful out West or it's helpful in Alaska, but it doesn't relate to Virginia. Um, so that's where I've kind of tried to, to plug myself into is like giving people accurate information on our, our local fisheries um, rather than trying to stay super broad. It's just like, let me give you the info that you're actually going to use, you know, 51 weeks out of the year. And then that one week when you're out West, you find a great shop out West and then ask them that info there every other Thursday, uh, in 2019, we did a free fly tying class, which was just like a basic um, beginner class to get people into it. We provide all the materials. We have um, all the tools that you need. So like all that, you know, whoever it is needs to do is just show up. That was it. Um, those were, were really popular. Um, we had on average, you know, like 20-ish people um, attending those. We've had as many as 25, which is the max that I can have in our space because it is very small. Um, through COVID, we, we just recently started doing the classes again with a cap of nine people. Um, and then, you know, doing the social distancing practices put into place. So, uh, it's a little bit smaller, but then, uh, within that, we also would do classes, uh, on like fly fishing one ones you know, how to tie knots, that, that sort of stuff. So, um, basically just as a way to be able to get more people into it and to, to help people, you know, be better. Um, we're kind of setting ourselves up to be able to do classes and um, educational things a lot easier um, and then possibly be moving locations to a larger location as well. That would still be in downtown Lynchburg because, um, as, as you mentioned, when we opened up, I mean, down, downtown Lynchburg has changed like drastically the past five years, whereas it used to be, you know, empty warehouses and vacant buildings. Um, now it's, you know, small shops and coffee shops and great food places and the whole nine yards. Um, so it, it's a, it's a really cool environment to be a part of. And the community has been like phenomenal to, to us, um, as a shop and as a, as a place of business, cause it is a, you know, it's a weird thing in, in 2021 to be a brick and mortar because so many people have gone to pretty much, uh, online shopping alone. But, um, I think that's where, you know, we can kind of stand out is, um, you know, we're providing a brick and mortar location. We do have online, so somebody can find whatever we have online, um, but we're providing the education. And I think that that is what sets us apart from um, a lot of other places because we're willing to, to nicely sit with you and, and teach you in a non demeaning way. Because I think that a lot of times, you know, people don't want to feel like this, some arrogant person, you know, like this is what you should have been doing and this is where you should have gone. Um, they they want to know, you know, where they should go or what they should do. And, and because I've been pretty free with that information um, and, and willing to just come alongside and teach people as more of like a friend, then um, I think that, you know, people appreciate that. And so it's enabled us to do a lot of, a lot of cool stuff with uh, like I said, more cool stuff on the way. So, you know, like one of the things I I'll give you one of my ideas because I don't care if somebody steals this, but um, is doing like a kid's fly tying club. There's been some older gentlemen in Lynchburg that have been kind enough to donate a little bit of money um, to get like a kid's tying club started. Wouldn't cost the kids anything. And all of the materials will be, you know, paid for and provided by this, this older group of gentlemen. And so um, that's one of the cool things that I, I plan and would like to get, um, would like to get rolling. And it's just all about, you know, finding the right places to be able to do these things, um, during, during business hours is my, uh, I guess objective because I mean, you've seen our place, it's not huge. All the classes that we've been doing have to be after hours. So that way, um, you know, I basically move all of the aisles out of the way, 
because they're all on wheels uh, to make classroom space. So um, just trying to, you know, find a location where we can have that set up all the time and be able to offer a lot more classes. So uh, I, I'm excited about it. There's a lot more plans other than that one. But what a wonderful idea doing the kids tie flying club. I mean, you're creating a whole new generation of anglers who are going to get yeah, into the hobby. Absolutely. Yeah. That, and that, that's, awesome. that's like the same, you know, the same range of when I got into it, um, like 10 or 11, because it, it was, it just be, kind of became a part of you know, who I was in a way. Um, and so it, you know, I've heard people like, well, that's such a great business idea because you're basically, you know, getting these kids into time. And it's funny because it's just not how my brain works. Like my, I, I don't look at, at uh, the end goal being like making money at all to me, you know, and this is maybe I'm just a bad businessman, but you know, I fed my family. So <laughs> it's like, to me, it, it's more about making people better. And like when you have kids in the area that, you know, maybe their parents don't like fishing. Um, I, and I can't tell you how many times, honestly, that I've had um, younger kids, you know, in that preteen to teenage, young teenagers, uh, like message me on Instagram asking questions and like saying, you know, I don't get to fish much except for when I'm with my grandpa because my parents don't fish. So it's like this weird, uh, weird, I don't know, odd uncle role, I guess, that I, I've played with some of um, some of these people and just like trying to point them in the right way uh, as much as I can. Um, and so, and, and I enjoy it, you know, I enjoy teaching. It's one of the things that I'm, I'm pretty passionate about. And like I said, it's just kind of a part of who I am is, is trying to help people become better and to realize that it's not all rocket science. You know, <laughs> at the end of the day, you're just trying to put a hook in a fish's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of people don't realize that kids are really interested in these type of outdoor activities. People, a, a lot of people I know are under the assumption that kids are just interested in video games or electronics or talking to their friends. And as a former teacher, I can tell you that kids are very interested in connecting to the outdoors. And you see this, you see it with all of these growing outdoor hobbies and, and, young people getting very involved in them in a very big way. So it is a great idea for you to be starting something like that. For people who are interested in getting started, but don't know what they need, what type of equipment would you say they have to have to get started? Yeah, you know, coming into it with spring and summer kind of on your mind, um, the main thing is just going to be a rod, a reel and some flies. I mean, it, it is really basic. Um, fly fishing, I think is known as like, a gear junkies sport, you know, like you have to have a thousand different things. Um, and you can, there are people who, you know, they have the vest just stuffed to the brim. Um, but in all reality, you know, especially on some of the smaller streams, I know you've, you've expressed, um, how you, you like to hike some of the streams around the Shenandoah national park. Um, and a lot of those smaller streams through the summer months or like spring, you know, I just have on, um, a tear, pair of like, hiking boots i mean they're they're waterproof um or like a water tractiony style shoe but other than that you know i just have a pocket with a with a couple of flies in it and then a rod and and you're fishing um and so i think that's one of the common misconceptions is that uh you have to have all sorts of equipment and and you really don't as long as you've got a rod and you've got a reel that's that's suitable to where you know you want to go um then that's that's the starting point. Uh, I don't think waders are a necessity uh, up front in, in our area. Um, you know, through the winter time, if it's thirty degrees out, yeah, you should consider getting uh, a pair of waders or like galoshes or rubber boots or something like that. But for the most part, you know, it's a uh, rod, reel, flies, that sort of thing. That that stuff can cost you, you know, as little as like an intro kit that has the rod and the reel. Um, you know, hundred. Uh, $119 would be like a starting point um, that, that we sell in the shop up to you know, most people go like right at that 200 to $50 range because you get a warranty with everything, um, which means, you know, if you trip and, and break the rod, you can actually get the rod replaced, which is, um, which is really nice. Um, and then, you know, there's some people that, you know, they want to spend, they want to get the best. And so, you know, they might spend up to, $1,500 on a whole setup. So it's kind of like you get what you can afford and you get out there. Flies don't cost hardly anything, you know, from like $2 to three to $4 is like your common price for a fly. So, um, you know, $300, um, say ballpark and you can have pretty much everything you need to fish like Shenandoah national park or like up in 
some of the parks in West Virginia or down towards me, um, George Washington or, or Thomas uh, or Jefferson National Forest. Um, so it doesn't it doesn't take a lot. Really, that's what I tell most people is like your ballpark figure for getting into this with like the basics. Um, it's about three hundred dollars, um, which is not bad, in my opinion, because, you know, if you want to get into guitar, a guitar, a decent one's going to cost you anywhere from 300 to a thousand bucks. Uh, you want to get into cooking more? Well, you know, a set of knives can be 300 easily. So <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's cool because it's gotten cheaper. Um, and that's one of the things we touched on a little bit earlier, but, uh, it didn't, it didn't used to be that way. Stuff used to be a lot more expensive, but the more people that get into it, it enables the companies to offer, um, better goods at a, at a lower price. Um, and that all just is because, it's it's business you know the more people you're selling to then um you know the bigger your company can get what do you think about people buying used rods or used equipment would you recommend that somebody you know start out by buying something that's used so there's two two ways you can look at it one if budget is your main factor like that is the main thing then just find the deal that you can that you can get. Um, and that might be coming to a shop and figuring that out. That might be searching Facebook Marketplace. I mean, if I found a bamboo fly rod or if I found an old fly rod for like $20 at a yard sale, I would buy it and I own a shop, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. So like some things are just, in all reality, like it's, it's just a good deal. Um, in terms of the quality of the rods, you know, a fly rod doesn't go bad. So um, the only way that it can go bad is if it's straight up broken. If it's straight up broken, you, you can't really fix it. I think that's one of the things people expect is like, I have people all the time that bring, you know, grandpa's rod into the shop and they just assume that I can, that I can fix it, you know, a cracked rod. Um, and you can't fix a, a cracked fiberglass or graphite rod, which is what 95% of rods anymore are made out of. Um, so like if you find something consignment and you're flipping through it, you know, and it's like straight up, you see a huge crack in it, then to me, that's a no go. Um, the main benefit of getting a, a new rod compared to something on consignment, like I said, is going to be the warranty. Um, because you know, with an older rod, if you spend a hundred dollars on it and you break it, or if you spend, you know, $25 on it and you break it, you're done. You're at $25, which isn't that bad, but um, with the newer stuff, you are getting a rod that's going to be lighter. It will cast a little bit farther. Um, a lot of those just like little bit overall, it's going to be better. Um, you know, that's just a reality is stuff that's coming out in 2021 is like, even the cheap stuff now is as good as the, the really good stuff in like the nineties and early two thousands. Um, so that's just one of those things to, to keep in mind. And so, yeah, like if the lines, you know, crummy on it, cause that's really the only thing out of a rod reel line that can go bad would be the fly line itself. Um, and so like a lot of times that I'll tell people is like, if you find a great deal on a, on a rod or reel that I don't sell in the shop, um, then just look over the, the line itself. If the line itself has all sorts of cracks or mud, or it's really nasty, that would be the only thing that you you know should replace. Um, and the main reason for that is going to be a fly line typically is supposed to float. Um, and so if it's not floating, then, you know, that is not of any help to you. Um, fly lines, you know, can be from like $30 to $130, um, but they last you a long time. So it's a little different than just conventional fishing where you get fishing line from Walmart and it's, you know, $4 and you, you know, you trim away at it and you're done and you trim away. Fly line is, is meant to last years, not, um, not, you know, like a couple of days. Okay. So people need, uh, need a ride. They need, they need flies. Now, you know, if somebody has not yet developed the skill of tying their own flies, how do they know what flies they should purchase? We, we have a couple of ways that um, you can get them from us. Like I have what's called, a, I think it's like a shop selection. Um, and so basically what that is, is there's a couple of different like selections you can go through. So there's like a small stream selection, um, a stocked trout selection, a smallmouth bass selection. So what that does is when, when you buy that, uh, when you buy that selection, at whatever time of the year that you purchase it, we give you the top patterns that are, that are fishing well. And then I will typically... Um, write down the the name of the fly and then like, you know, some of the ways to use it. So um, that's a really easy way. That's just like a frictionless experience. If you're just trying to buy something very quickly um, and get it in hand, 
Um, you know, some people will end up getting flies from eBay or whatever random source. There's a couple of reasons why I would encourage you to spend a little bit more on flies. Cause like there are some websites that'll sell flies for like 40 cents per fly. Um, there, there's primarily two reasons. One on my half is just an ethical reasons is typically when a fly, when it, something is priced that low, um, it means that whoever is making it, cause this is like an art form. Um, cause there's every single fly that you ever see, somebody has sat down to make it like they can't make these on machines or anything. Um, so if, if somebody is charging 40 cents for a fly, I, the, the only way that they can make that is in like a sweatshop of some kind. I, I've talked with enough fly companies to know that that's the truth. Mm. Um, and so like, I just on an ethical standpoint, I don't support that. Therefore I'm not going to buy it. Um, and, uh, and there's other ways, you know, somebody can message me or send me an email if they're more interested in that. Cause I, I have a little bit more information on that, um, as well. But, uh, so other things that when you, when you spend money on like something really cheap, so like a fly, if the intention of that fly is to, to float, one of the ways that companies will, uh, be able to sell stuff for less is they put, um, less materials on it, which typically would mean that the fly is not going to float as well as one that's just a little bit more. Um, so it, what, in all reality, you know, if you're talking, you want to get a dozen flies or you want to get two dozen flies, um, you might spend $12 more, you know, getting them from a reliable source, which might be me. Uh, it might be some of, there's other really good fly shops in Virginia as well. That's really the basics. I think, it, you know, if you've got a dozen or maybe two dozen flies, that'll get you pretty long time, um, uh, out on the water and, uh, the stuff, you know, I, there's a couple of just like basic generic flies that work well kind of all year, um, especially in Virginia. Tailtellersva.com. So our, our shop name is Tailtellers Fly Shop. Um, and so, you know, the website is just Tailtellersva, just like it's Virginia. Um, so it's easy to find. You know, I, I try to, I'm always working on the website. And um, um, one of the things as 2020 progresses is just working on more ways to get uh, that, that DNA of education that we have, um, online. So that way, you know, there's more ways to, more ways to learn, more ways to experience, um, without coming to a class, you know, you can, you can do that from, uh, the couch, but you know, my favorite is when I'm able just to talk to somebody face to face or, or, um, you know, actually talking to them via email, um, or, you know, the phone or whatever. So, um, that's, that's one of the things that we've got a lot of fly tying videos videos um that you can find on like youtube our youtube channel or um they're all linked onto our website as well so um there's there's more than just you know stuff to buy tailtellers.com and i will be sure to put that in the show notes of this episode so yeah. that people can click on it directly and go to your webpage and find all of your social media um from there as well too yep. and yep. and how to contact you Absolutely. Yeah. I, that's, I really, um, I think Instagram has been a pretty invaluable tool for us because I, I do like photography. Um, and so it is, it's, you know, fun to be able to interact with people from all over, um, through Instagram. And honestly, I treat Instagram kind of like text messaging because all of the messages go straight to me. So if you do have a question and you don't feel like sending me an email, you know, Instagram is a, is a great way, um, to get in touch because, I've pretty much always got it. Unless I'm out fishing, you know, I'm going to be in the shop with my phone on me. <laughs> before we, before we finish up, I think um, people would be interested in knowing what locations you would recommend for fly fishing, especially for somebody who's just getting started. So there's a lot of small streams that I really enjoy, um, enjoy fishing. And, and I, I used to live in Waynesboro. So there's the South river in Waynesboro. That's just really easy to access. Um, but so streams for like, that I fish a lot is I do fish the small streams, um, which is just typically we call it blue lining or you, you look at a map um, and all the little blue lines that you see up towards the mountains, pretty much all of those little streams have, uh, have wild brook trout in them, um, which are trout that, you know, nobody has really stocked. They're just there. Um, and so I like doing that because it is uh, the sense of exploration, uh, if you will, um, and then I also, I fish the James uh, a whole lot. I've been fishing the James pretty much my whole life. Um, and so I do that typically uh, how I have done, I'm spoiled now, but, um, I used to just wade fish it or just, you know, walk into it. And that would be like your river runs through it stuff. But now I have a, I have a, a bigger raft. And so, um, we'll raft it and fish it that way. If you have a kayak, you know, that's easy. Um, 
a couple of the other places I do fish, um, when, when our streams get blown out or when, um, when we have a lot of rain that causes our rivers or smaller streams to just go chocolate milk. Um, I do fish a lot of lakes as well. Um, and I, I used to do that on um, a kayak and then I used to do that on a raft, but now I have a, another boat that I go out and do that on. Um, so if you don't have a, a, a boat, uh, or a kayak of any kind, then, then probably the easiest places to go are going to be those smaller streams, which we have wild populations year round. Um, that when the, when the temperature is right through the summer, you can fish for them, uh, year round and they do eat year round. Um, and it's typically a pretty good numbers game. Um, so I'd say one of the easiest places to start is there, um, because the fish are pretty willing to eat and they're, they're not that picky. Um, and so that's where I tell people to, to focus on, uh, is, is chasing a fish that is not that picky just to give you that confidence early on. So another species, especially if you have younger kids that you're trying to get them to experience fly fishing, uh, would be, uh, sunfish or, uh, bluegill, that sort of thing in smaller ponds, um, because they are, you know, they're pretty much going to eat whatever pops in front of them. And there's a plethora, like almost every lake you ever could come across in any park or anything like that uh, is going to have bluegill in them. Um, so that's a, that's a fun place to start as well. I honestly do that a lot. Cause uh, you know, when we take our kids to the park um, I'll just bring a rod in the car and me and one of the girls can go down and catch a couple fish and uh, go back up and, you know, send them send the kids down the, the slide or whatever. <laughs> so, um, there's a, there's a, just, just a lot of cool options that we have here in, uh, in Virginia. That's excluding all the saltwater stuff that you can do too. <laughs> but you mentioned blue lining and, you know, finding waterways on the map. Are there any considerations that people need to worry about such as, um, private property or getting licenses? Yeah. So the, the main things that you're going to be looking for with that, um, are going to be, you're, you want to be fishing a national forest property unless you have permission to be on that stream. Um, so one of the apps, I, I do use a, an app on my phone to figure that out easily, um, is Onyx Hunt. It's a, an app developed by you know, people that are hunting to make sure that they're on um, National Forest property. And so that actually brings up, it's, it's, it's kind of insane, um, it, it taps into the database pretty much everywhere to show you um, who owns what property and then what property is National Forest. Um, so down towards where we are in Lynchburg or central Virginia, uh, it makes it really easy because most of the streams, um, have a road that parallels them for at least, you know, a fair amount of time. So you can open up that app when you're on the road and just treat it like a Google maps essentially and drive up the road until all of a sudden you're in national forest property. Um, and when you're in national forest property, it's all, it's uh, it's fair game. Um, and, and pretty much all the, the nice thing I'll say is pretty much all of these streams, all it takes to get access is to just go higher up. Um, so what that means is like, if you're on a road that parallels the stream, if the lower part of that is private property, all you could do is you just keep driving a little bit more. Um, it might take an extra five minutes of driving, but eventually, you know, it's going to go to national forest property where, where you're fine to be on it. Um, so then other factors just to keep in mind would be, you know, one, let somebody know where you're going. Um, if you go up into the woods by yourself, it's just always a good practice to let somebody know that you are, you know, up there just in case there is anything that happens. What is one piece of gear that you can't live without? I, I really like having my camera. <laughs> 